Welcome to the Teaching in Medicine podcast, where we explore effective teaching of the healthcare providers of tomorrow. I am your host, Dr. Kathleen Timmy. We are lucky to have Dr. John Sawicki back with us today. You may remember him from an earlier episode highlighting his teaching experiences and role as a pediatric hospital medicine fellow. John is MedPeds trained, and he's currently in his second and final year of pediatric hospital medicine fellowship at the University of Utah. He's also my partner in crime for our residency's resident as teacher elective. And John has a longstanding love of education and is here to chat with me about small group teaching. Welcome back. Oh, thank you so much for, for having me. Uh, really excited to do yet another podcast and also very excited for the RIT elective. It's going to be great. I th- I'm really excited about this partnership. Yeah. All right. So it's been about four months since we recorded last time. Catch us up. How's your fellowship going? How was your summer? Summer was, was good. Uh, fellowship is, is great. It's so crazy how fast time, time goes. And I feel like my grandparents always used to say that to me. And yet here I am uh, saying, saying that when asked how are, how are things going? Um, but yeah, kind of the, the fellowship projects are moving into their final stages, uh, getting ready for uh, attending Hood uh, in, in a couple of months. So looking, looking forward to, to that. How about you? How was your summer? It was good. I mean, a weird summer for sure. We, yeah. we moved. So that was kind of interesting during COVID. Oh, wow. And yeah, I feel like did a lot of camping, hiking, just kind of staying put. All big trips were canceled. So, but still finding fun things to do. We're lucky to live in Utah. Yes. Yeah. The, the camping scene has been, has been great. That's been a great fallback um, yeah. to just get outdoors and get away from everything. Yeah. So let's get into small group teaching. Let's start with a common definition. So how would you define small group teaching? Yeah, that's a good, good question. And I, I was, I, when I kind of got the script and was thinking about that, I'm like, Hmm, what, what is sort of the magic, the magic number? I mean, I think like the number that I have in my head is somewhere in like that eight to 10 learner range. Um, I think getting any, uh, getting a bit above that, um, I would actually think about making the group even smaller and, and turning the group into smaller groups to do certain, certain activities. Um, but I think I really have kind of the small group teaching mindset and acting more as a facilitator uh, and a, a leader of a discussion as opposed to a true lecturer um, in that sort of eight to 10 number. Yeah, I would agree. I think as soon as I start thinking of, well, how could I divide these people into smaller groups? Like yeah. how can you get people into pairs or maybe have some activities? Then it's probably not a small group anymore because yeah, you really have to change your structure when you're doing a large group teaching session. And I think also when I have to strain my brain to remember everyone's name, then I'm, I'm definitely moving into more large, large group mode. Yeah, that's definitely fair. Can you give us some examples of when you teach in small groups? I think this is really one of the most common environments that we teach in as physicians, because I, I really think of like the chalk talk that 10 to 15 minute session you have with your, with your ward team as being kind of that ideal small group discussion time. Um, but also things like problem-based learning. Uh, I know in, in medical school, we had a, a weekly um, or yeah, problem-based PBL group that was four or five med students and then one facilitator who was a physician. 
Um, so I think those are, are kind of two two examples. Yeah, I, I, but I, I really think it comes up quite a bit on the wards. Um, and even when you're just like maybe outside a patient's room or even at the bedside, I think you can kind of use some of the small group teaching tactics um, in those settings as well. Yeah, and I think even some, you know, more planned lectures can be small group mm-hmm. or not necessarily lectures, but sessions. So we do a lot of planned formal teaching with our fellows. And right now we only have two fellows. So say that's a, a very small group. But, you know, I often think of it too as the kind of off the cuff on the wards, 15 spare minutes after round, uh, kind of rapid fire chalk talks, but can be formalized too, depending. So how do you prepare to teach a small group? I think this can, this is one of the most difficult questions because as you mentioned, a lot of times it is sort of off the cuff. Oh, I've got 10 minutes, 10 minutes here, uh, 15 minutes, 15 minutes there. Maybe the afternoon is slow. We don't have an admission. Let's find a little bit of time um, to teach. So really what, what I'll do, especially when I'm on the wards, is first think of the, the topic that I want to talk about and discuss with the group. And we'll almost always link that back to one of the patients that is on our, on our census. Um, and I think that's really one of the, the, the best ways to help facilitate the small group discussion is trying to link it back to, to something clinical, to something you either are seeing right in front of you um, as, you're, as you're on the wards or maybe a case that had, had happened a, a little while ago. Um, so that's really where I, where I start. Uh, and then I kind of ask myself, what, what do I want to achieve? What do I want the learners to get out of this? And kind of come up with um, not maybe super formal learning objectives, but kind of get my mind thinking about, about those things. Um, and then lastly, it's how, how am I going to get them to achieve those objectives? Am I going to be doing most of the talking and writing up on the board? Am I going to be asking them open-ended questions and maybe try and get the senior resident to kind of do a little bit of the, of the teaching and the, and the leading of the discussion. And so I'll think about kind of a, a number of different ways to, to guide the, the discussion in kind of in that preparation, also thinking about, are there things I, I want to use, um, like a whiteboard, uh, like a handout, um, something like that. So I'll kind of do that. Um, I don't want to say like every day when I'm, when I'm working with the, with the war teams, but certainly a couple of times a week as I'm pre-rounding kind of do like pre-teaching um, rounds too, where I'm, where I'm thinking of all that stuff. Yeah, I think you highlighted the main steps. So it sounds like you're identifying a topic that ideally you can work through a patient presentation, coming up with your goals, and then coming up with your teaching methods. And I think that's a nice framework for thinking about small group teaching. And with the small group, I think it can be overwhelming for some learners. How do you make sure that you're creating a safe and ideal learning environment. I think part of this comes back to what I'd mentioned earlier about just remembering everyone's name. I, I think that's uh, often something that we, that we forget about. Uh, I know when I've been uh, kind of in small groups discussions with educators that I really admire and look up to, they're almost always making it just very personal, very intimate, using, using everyone's first, first name. So I really try and start with that. And also, we'll really try and keep the questions to the group just very open, open-ended. Um, and if there is ever a time where they kind of shoot a question back at me or like, oh, man, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, that that's, a, that's a good thing because that means that there is now a knowledge gap that, that, we, can, that we can fill. 
Um, so instead of approaching that, oh gosh, you know, John, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Instead of approaching that with, oh man, wow, you're uh, your endocrinologist uh, attending last week definitely did not do a good job of teaching you that. It's like, oh great, you know, that's that's awesome that you that you don't know. Let's try and investigate this um, this together, uh, and and then also just being humble uh, in my own knowledge because um, I think that can be one of the intimidating parts of small group teaching is because it's that intimate setting. You as the facilitator may get more questions thrown your way. Um, and just being very humble with the, yeah, you know, that's a great question. I have absolutely no idea. Um, let's go look it up and, and come back and, and chat about it. Um, so those are, yeah, some of the, some of the things that I um, will try and do to just keep it a very open, um, very safe, and um, just informal learning environment. I love that you brought up modeling humility and being okay with saying, I don't know something. So I think the first few times I taught in a small group or the first few times I was the endocrine attending on call, I would, you know, read a ton about a topic and felt like I needed to know everything in and out before I even stood in front of the students to explain. But I think some of the most meaningful things that we can do in medicine is remind that there's so many resources we have to look things up and we do not need to know every single thing um, at any given moment and being able to say, you know, I don't know that, I don't remember that, but I do know where we can look and let's get together later and figure out the answer. And I wish I had seen that more in my own training, you know, that it was okay to not know things and this is how we figure it out. I love that you brought that up. I I think that's, I I think we're moving more towards that in, in medical education, but for the longest time we, didn't have all the information right at our fingertips and it, having the getting the answers to questions involved like using things like books which um, and going to things like libraries and that, I've that heard takes, of these places yeah they <laughs> apparently they apparently they exist where whereas now like it can be right right on your phone within within seconds yeah um, so I, yeah I, I think it makes it uh, certainly a little bit more more challenging for for us to keep up with that technology and to keep up with the very quickly changing literature, but it also makes it a little bit easier because it, it's, it's so much easier to say, oh, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. That's a great question. Let's, let's find out quickly um, together. Um, a couple other things I thought about with safe learning environment, I think it helps to set up ground rules at the start of a session saying there are no dumb questions. This is a safe place to ask any question, anything you're curious about. You know, and also just to try to meet your learners where they're at and say, if I'm if I'm describing something that you're not familiar with or mm-hmm. you're not understanding the way that I'm describing something, let me know and we can start over just so they feel so safe asking questions from the get go. That's, that's such a great point that that just the, the expectations being set are, I think, just so, so helpful. Um, so, yeah, that's a that's an awesome point. Yeah, like I can think of times in, in residency where, you know, an expert on a topic would come and, and talk to us about it. And I was just, you know, didn't always feel comfortable asking a dumb question from someone who was so well-respected and knowledgeable. It's so, it's so intimidating. And I think those are, those are the lecturers and the facilitators where they generate the greatest number of questions in your head. But there's just this initial hesitation with, whoa, this, I, don't, I, can't, I can't ask her that question. No way. Yeah, it's important to try to break through that barrier. So do you have any big picture goals that you try to accomplish in a small group session? 
I, th- I think just on in in general, um, I really try and make each small group teaching session a, a discussion. And so what I really want to do is try and talk less and have the, the rest of the group really be discussing amongst themselves and, and with me uh, the topic that we're, that we're presenting or that I'm presenting and then kind of help to fill in gaps when I, when I can. Um, I, I think that to me is, th- those are the best small group sessions is when you almost don't even know that the facilitator is, is there. But when there is kind of a bump in the road or a knowledge gap, the facilitator kind of comes in and, and helps and helps out. So that's, that's really what I, what I strive for. Um, I also think small groups are a, a great time to work more on like the clinical reasoning and uh, problem solving as opposed to just like pure knowledge base type stuff. So instead of just as the facilitator spitting out facts for the group to absorb, kind of working through through a case together and using the background knowledge that the that the learners have to solve a problem. Um, so I think those those two those two things, trying to just take a step back and let there be more of a discussion, and then also trying to highlight problem solving as opposed to uh, knowledge gaining, is kind of the, the two overarching goals that I usually shoot for. And what do you do when you have the opportunity to teach a small group, but you really don't have a lot of time to prepare? We had brought up examples of, you know, quick after rounds, somebody has a question on a topic, you have the time to teach, but you had zero minutes to think about it. Do you have any tips for winging it? Oh man, I um, I think that is is one of the the most intimidating uh, scenarios, and I think just describing it is like making my palms a little bit a little bit sweaty. Um, but I, I always try and have kind of in my in my back pocket, just like looking at the the list of patients that um, our team has in the in the morning, and thinking, okay, what what's maybe one or two things that the residents are going to ask to to chat about. And then um, kind of having just a, a few discussion points uh, in, the, in the back of my mind to talk about. I mean, it certainly doesn't have to be uh, extensive or, or long, um, just a couple of things that we can talk for, for five minutes about. And then always maybe like one or two uh, pediatric hospital medicine-based topics that I, that I always feel comfortable talking about and just having those prepared. So if there is a, a bit of a downtime, if there is a bit of, of bigger to learn, I can just kind of bring those out and say, hey, guys, you know, why don't we talk a little bit about the pathophysiology of respiratory distress in, in the infant um, and kind of just have that just in, in my brain um, sort of right, right up there with the Red Sox winning the World Series. Like those things are just never going to leave my, uh, mm-hmm. my brain. <laughs> I think you brought up some great points about always having a couple go-to topics that you can present that are very high yield and relevant for whatever group of learners you work with the most. And there's even uh, practice involving teaching scripts, if you've heard of those before. So it's kind of, you know, preparing yourself with a quick one pager on a clinical topic, including what teaching methods you would use. So encourage listeners to look up teaching scripts. There's many that exist already. There's libraries that cover, you know, pediatric asthma, basic topics that come up again and again. And there's also templates online where you can create your own teaching script. So you could quickly, you know, pull it up. Remember, these are my objectives. These are my teaching methods. And these are the few things that I'm trying to learn. I also think it's important when you're winging it that 
you're not responsible for covering every single aspect of a topic. Mm -hmm. So say you just saw a really interesting patient with congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And I apologize for all of my one-sided undercurrent examples, but <laughs> you know, in my teaching session, I don't need to cover pathophysiology, treatment, stress dosing, long-term management, surgical management. I could just pick one thing, whatever thing I'm most comfortable with or whatever thing is most relevant with the promise to come back and do a little bit more. My mom used to always say with house cleaning, like just give it a lick and a promise, like just kind of <laughs> do a little bit and promise to like come back with the vacuum tomorrow. So I, I think that that's relevant in medicine too. Like you don't have to do everything in that one session, but do what you're comfortable with. I also think using your learners too. Um, so if there's a really interesting case and you're getting ready to wing it and it might be, you know, you just need a few minutes to think about things, you can start by having your learner, you know, why don't you present this case to the group for those that aren't as familiar? And that gives you a little bit of time to think about, okay, what am I going to talk about? How am I going to organize this session? And just gives you a bit of a break to ease into it. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a really, all of those points were, were awesome. And I, th I think just, again, realizing that you're, you're part of the team, even when it comes to teaching, the, the onus doesn't always fall entirely on, on you. So using the, the other members of the, of the team to give yourself a little bit of a, a breather, um, this is a great, great point. So sometimes when you're teaching, you have access to a whiteboard or a chalkboard. Do you have any tips for when it's appropriate to use that, tips for how to use it effectively? And I will uh, fully, uh, fully admit that this is not something that I am, I am great with and I'm still learning the most effective uh, ways to, to, use, to use the whiteboard. Uh, I, I think that it really comes in handy when you have any sort of like algorithm or flow chart that you that you want to talk about um so if i, I for some reason anemia comes comes to mind um like when i work through the differential diagnosis of anemia i have kind of a, a very clear algorithm in my in my mind and kind of steps that i follow so if i'm talking about that i want to put up that those steps uh, and kind of a, a flow flow chart algorithmic form on the on the whiteboard um, I think the, the other time that I've, I've used it is uh, with, um, with, with any sort of like anatomic um, discussion that you're, that you're having. I am maybe the, the, the worst artist, I, <laughs> yes, out there. Um, but still, I, I think you can still be, be effective with a heart that just has four squares and, and you can kind of get your, get your point across that, that way. Um, so I try not to be intimidated by it and really try and, and use it for um, times when I'm kind of going through some type of algorithm or flow, flow chart. And then also if there is any sort of anatomical discussion in the, in the talk, I try and use it for, for that as well. Um, and I know, uh, Dr. Timmy, I had the pleasure of hearing one of your small group talks on when we were uh, on service together and it was awesome and you made exceptional use of, of the whiteboard so i i really want to turn this question back to you and and hear your answer to to how to use the whiteboard effectively well thanks uh, you know, there's a couple of things that i try to keep in mind with the whiteboard if i'm able to get there ahead of time and there is some sort of a flow chart or a formula or something that's going to take me a long time to write it out. I try to do that ahead of time so that I'm not wasting those 15 precious minutes with 
writing down details. I think another effective use of the whiteboard or chalkboard is kind of keeping notes for somebody who might be coming in five minutes late, 10 minutes late, and it allows them to just kind of catch up to where you're at in the conversation. So I tend to use it to just put up the big highlights and oftentimes it's case-based presentations. So maybe a quick one-liner, maybe a couple remarkable things about the review of systems, a couple pertinent positives and negatives with the physical. You're certainly not trying to capture every single thing anyone has said, but enough that someone could come in read it and get the gist of where you're at in the conversation. I also feel strongly about the person who's giving the talk should be the one in charge of the marker or the Mm -hmm. piece of chalk. I think sometimes, you know, when we get into like a little bit larger settings, we'll have somebody scribe like, oh, will you volunteer to be the scribe? But then that's kind of a guess what I'm thinking situation. Like as the presenter, you know where you want to go with this conversation and I think you should be in control of like what gets written. And it also forces you if you're talking and writing to not write too much. So that can be helpful. And I think you can, you know, not just put words up there, but also you can highlight connections between, you know, different things that you're talking about, like an arrow from one point to the other point. You can use the eraser too. So as you're narrowing down a differential, sometimes it's powerful to just erase you know, them from the list and open up more space on the whiteboard. So the main things are, you know, try not to fill up too much of the space, keep it to just the pertinence and uh, make sure that you're in control of the, of the marker. I really love that point of keeping the, the learner who's coming in a little bit late in, in mind. Um, that's, that's fantastic. That's a great, great thing to, to think about. Yeah. So Given the current environment, have you had to do any small group teaching virtually because of COVID? I have. Yeah. Um, and it is, I really just kind of dying to get back to the in, to the in-person stuff. Um, I, I think Zoom and, and other uh, virtual platforms have offered a new challenge to the small group, to the small group teaching. I can't say my my approach really has changed all that much. I still try and kind of think about uh, a topic. Uh, make it applicable to a recent case. Um, think about the objectives I, I want the learners to achieve, and then how I'm going to get them to to achieve them. But I, I do. I, th- I think it's it's almost more important to give everyone in virtual land a little bit of extra time to respond. Um, and I think that can be really difficult as the facilitator is just being comfortable with that bit of awkward silence when you pose an open ended question to the group. And really just trying to be somewhat comfortable with that, with that silence. And I think that's even more important on, on Zoom because people are going to fidget around with their mute button and type stuff into the, into the chat. So I, I think just kind of being, being patient with, with that is, is one thing that I've, I've tried to channel via, via Zoom. Other than, other than that, I, I really try and um, keep it my style during the the teaching session very much the same still trying to get everyone involved using um individuals first first names uh calling on them directly uh, and and going going from there and i think one of the advantages can be that you can share your screen so you might not necessarily have to do your four box heart you can (laughs) find something just one step better um you can share videos and other resources i could see that as being a benefit but yeah i agree there's something about sitting down in person that's a lot more powerful 
Have have you used the the whiteboard function on Zoom to to like draw either on like a PowerPoint or on a on a blank blank slide or something? I haven't personally, but I've seen it done pretty effectively. Yeah. I've used like a PowerPoint slide where I'll type in examples as people are giving them. So I've kind of built in some blank slides into talks just to have space for that. I've used the breakout rooms, but that kind of gets into more medium to large yep. group. And I did actually use a polling feature last week that I thought was kind of fun and some, you know, quizzing features just to get people to wake up a little bit during the yeah. session. So it's yeah. hard. It's really hard. And I even find it hard to pay attention for more than 15, 20 minutes on these meetings. Yeah, I do. I do think using something like uh, Kahoot or Poll Everywhere and embedding that into your into your small group talk, um, I think is is that much more important with with Zoom. Um, yeah, I think those those can be really powerful things to help keep everyone engaged. Yeah. Speaking of learner engagement, do you have any tips? Maybe going back to the you know in person setting mm-hmm. of how to keep people engaged if you notice someone's drip, drifting off. Uh, yeah, I, I think um, again with that <laughs> going going back to knowing everyone's name, uh, I I really try and call on people directly and uh, ask them questions that are not yes or no questions. And I think that if if you kind of think about the questions that you pose as a facilitator, as as a as a teacher, a lot of them kind of move into that yes or no realm. And that kind of lets the the learner off off the hook. Um, so I, I really try and I keep keep the questions that I'm asking um, a bit more open ended, and then calling on the um, the individuals personally. Yeah, those are great tips. So I'd like to go through some kind of challenging scenarios when you're small group teaching. And the first one is when you're teaching learners of different levels in the same group. How do you effectively teach to a group that has medical students, interns, senior residents, maybe a fellow is sitting in? What's your approach? I, th- I think I, I try and, and think about just what, what level that individual is, is at currently. So for example, third year medical students um, who have just studied for step one are going to have some serious physiology and pathophysiology knowledge that probably even will exceed my own. So if there is any sort of pathophys type of question, that is getting directed right towards the medical student. If there, if there is an endocrine uh, fellow who I happen to be um, talking, talking with, then I'm going to ask more of a, what is the current literature regarding the treatment of congenital adrenal hyperplasia? Would love to know that anyway. Um, <laughs> and, and so try and um, kind of, and for, uh, for senior residents, um, almost more like kind of like next, next step type of, type of questions. Um, like if we're in a case-based discussion, kind of give them a little bit of, a little bit of data okay, what, what happens? How is your management, how is your thought process going to change if this new piece of, of data comes in? Um, and what are your contingency plans going to be moving forward? And I think for the more junior residents, I'm just kind of focusing on uh, that, that sort of basic like diagnostic and, and first one or two steps of management type of questions. That's really important to have tiered questioning. And then, you know, even as you move up the chain, so to speak, we could all still review pathophysiology. We could all still review the basics of really anything. So 
Um, I think as long as they're learning objectives that help you to understand your patient, that it's, it never hurts to review the basics. So how about this situation? And we can kind of brainstorm together because I, I think these are very challenging. We're both fairly early in our careers. And so what do you do if there's one learner who's really dominating the conversation? You know, every question you pose Dr. Suwicki, John, I just know the answer and I'm going to share it with you. I'm doing my sub-eye and I want to impress you. What do you do when, when that happens? Yeah, I, I think that it's also a pretty difficult uh, situation because you, I, I really like that type of learner excites me because they're involved, they're invested. Um, that's, that's great uh, that they have enthusiasm to, uh, to answer all the questions. Um, and I, I think it goes back to one of the techniques I talked about um, earlier is just calling on people directly. So pose a question to someone specific and don't even give uh, that eager beaver a chance um, to, to answer. Um, certainly, like I think after maybe the first question gets answered and if there's room for a, a bit more explanation, then you can kind of open it up to, to the group. And then if that more dominating learner steps in at that point, at least they still are kind of like sharing the, the spotlight in that sense. But I, I also try and try not to totally dis, discourage that. I try not to, to say, um, you know, okay, let's, let's give someone else a turn and, and call out that, that learner specifically. Instead, I, I kind of go the other way and try and address other members of the group directly. So how, what is, what's, what's your approach to that? I think similar. Um, if if I start a little bit too open-ended and maybe not asking specific people questions or contributions, then asking those who are maybe a, a bit more quiet. And I think a small group is sort of a safe place for even those who are introverted to offer their opinion. I think if it becomes like aggressive or too distracting and frequent, like every day somebody's not, you know, giving the residents or students a chance to speak up that I would maybe say something in private with that person and just say, hey, we've got some you know, members of the team who are a little bit quieter and, and might take a little bit longer to answer questions. Um, I really want to work on trying to get everybody to contribute. And, and I think they would get it without having to say, like, you need to not ask as much or, you know, <laughs> yeah. not volunteer as much as you're doing. So I think, you know, there is a time and place where you need to have that conversation. Yeah, I like yeah. I like that, um, and I, I also think it it could be an opportunity to to push that specific learner a little bit farther too. Um, so kind of push them to a point where they don't have the knowledge to answer the question that you're that you're asking. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, again, kind of will get to a, a knowledge gap that you might be able to fill and help them help them out. But it may also discourage them a little bit from kind of continuing to dominate the conversation like, well, if she's going to keep asking me these questions, I'm not really sure I want to go down that <laughs> rabbit hole every, yeah. every time. <laughs> um, how about the opposite situation, which I come in contact with way more often. So oh, you yeah. pose a question and there's radio silence. Nobody is contributing. Everybody's exhausted. What do you do then? I, I think uh, usually I, I, I and this this has happened a bunch on uh, Zoom. Yeah, um, I feel I feel like, and uh, just kind of say like, all right, well, guys, I'm I'm really really sorry for posing that extremely difficult question. I kind of put it back on back on myself. Let me let me word it a little bit of <laughs> of a different of a different way. Is there anyone out there, any brave soul who can step up and and help us get this get this discussion going? 
Um, so kind of try and, and build and build up the, the volunteer uh, and make them make them feel that they are supported. And, uh, and then also kind of putting it back on myself, like, all right, maybe I should ask the question um, a little bit differently. Um, I think being comfortable with silence too, and letting it almost get to the point of awkward silence can be helpful mm-hmm. because eventually somebody will speak up because it's just so uncomfortable to sit in silence for a long period of time. So I think if you're willing to just give it five more seconds, see if yeah. anybody speaks up, somebody might save you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think uh, in, in one of the small group teaching sort of uh, articles, resources that I've read, I think as long as 10 seconds was, was mentioned, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, I've tried that. I can't, I can get to like eight max. Like 10 <laughs> is just so long. <laughs> Should we try it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Ready? I'm going to ask you a question and then, okay. <laughs> and then you wait 10 seconds to answer and let's see what that feels like. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. I like it. So John, I want you to update us on the latest guidelines for CAH. What do you what do you think? Are we there yet? I'm dying. I, don't, yeah. <laughs> I think I think that was longer. I, that, that felt like 30 minutes. <laughs> Was I counting or were you counting? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I definitely was not counting. So I, I want to say, I want to say that was longer than 10 seconds, but um, it may be not. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and um, even, even if it's not your area of expertise, I bet you were about ready to make something up. Oh, or... <laughs> yes, I, I had. I, actually, that's what I was doing for that long period of time is I was like going to up to date to see if I could find something to, uh, to answer the question. <laughs> Another benefit of uh, yeah, Zoom, right. Zoom learning. You can yeah. Google it while your That's preceptor's right. asking you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> do you have any um, kind of fun or different approaches to small group teaching? We had kind of thrown a couple names out there, Kahoot, Poll Everywhere. Mm-hmm. What are some things that you've actually used in the small group setting? Well, I, I think now I'm going to just have everyone be quiet for 10 seconds <laughs> and, see, and see how that and see how that goes. Um, I've, I've really liked use, uh, using Kahoot, um, and I've actually used it more in uh, large group settings, but have, have also uh, dabbled a, a little bit in the, in, the, in the smaller group settings. Um, I think the, the competition um, that is uh, brought out in, in Kahoot, um, and for the listeners who don't know what that is, it's kind of this online quiz-based game uh, that, that you can kind of enter your own questions and then Learners will answer them uh, on their on their phones or on a on a laptop or computer, and learners get points for answering the questions quickly and and correctly. Um, so I know in, in our residency we use that quite a bit, kind of in our larger uh, academic half day settings. And I've used it a couple of times in the smaller group settings, and it's also also a lot of fun. I did have I haven't I haven't tried this personally, but I did have one attending in residency. Who would actually act out different types of seizures, and as the as the learners, you would have to describe um, the seizure and then give a differential diagnosis uh, for it. I don't think I have the acting chops to pull that off, but as as a learner, it was it was really really cool and uh, dare I say um, unforgettable. We used to. I don't think this was you know part of small group learning, but when I was a resident overnight, sometimes we would put a bunch of like names in a bowl and act it out as well. Like, uh, 
charades charades yeah so we basically play charades overnight what and we would put like names of attendings uh (laughs) sometimes there would be a disease in there like put each other in there and kind of poke fun at our different mannerisms but that's that's kind of giving me an idea for a for a small group teaching you could almost like make people act out you know different different yeah that could be fun I like that. Yeah. Don't even put the acting uh, kind of requirement on yourself. Like yeah. make, the, make the learners do it. Yeah. yeah. I like that. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I love Kahoot as well. I'll put a link um, to Kahoot in the show notes so people can access it. There's certain features that you can use for free. I think you can have a certain number of games that you keep in your library mm-hmm. for free. What other things have you found helpful? Anything you can think of? Other than kind of just like the the occasional bit of of humor that I'll try and throw out there to make people uh, a little bit more more comfortable and make it seem a bit more formal, um, I, yeah, I don't think I don't think I have have any other any other games or fun stuff. How about how about you? You can think about flipping the classroom, like having them. Mm. You know, if it's if they have a little bit of time to prepare, um, maybe you know you have to finish rounds and have things going on, but they have some downtime. You could have them watch a quick video, read a read a short article, and then come to the session ready to talk about the case on a more advanced level. So assigning some prep work, that's one thing you could do. I don't know if that's necessarily fun, but it's a different approach. Um, the flipped classroom. And then I've done this in more medium groups, but having a case that you work through and you reveal to you know, either pairs of individuals or individuals working on their own kind of as they ask you for information. And I've heard them called razor cases before, but I'm sure they go by other names. So for example, if you had a group of six learners and you divided them up into pairs and you said, okay, here's the one liner. What do you guys want to know about history? And then have them divide up and then they can ask you for labs and you can tell them what certain labs are. They can ask you for imaging. And you try to see who can get to the correct diagnosis kind of using the most efficient or, or least amount of resources. So yeah. there's some fun things to do. I like, I like that. Yeah. I, um, that as you, as you were talking about that, I, I'm definitely going to start incorporating those. I, I like those a lot. Uh, just giving um, kind of the group like a, a quiz, if you will. Um, so like I have a just in, stored in my desktop. Um, a, a list of common uh, bugs that cause osteomyelitis in children. And based on kind of just a little bit of the, the patient's history, you have to identify kind of the bug that would be associated with it. You pass that out to learners, you put two minutes on the on the clock, um, and you see how many that they can get. So again, kind of bringing in like a little bit of that competition, uh, not so much with with others, but kind of with your uh, with yourself to, to answer those in, in an expedited manner. Yeah, that sounds like fun. So one of our final questions, do you seek feedback on your teaching from small groups? And if so, how do you do that? I uh, will will try and ask the group almost immediately uh, after, um, you know, what, what did you guys, what did you guys think? And usually I kind of how I'm, how I'm picturing it is we finish up discussing kind of in one of the resident team rooms where kind of everyone is, is walking, walking out to do their own thing. Uh, and as we're doing that, I kind of pull one of the learners aside and, you know, say, Hey, like, how, how did that, how did that go? What could I have done better? What could I improve for next time? And then uh, just sometimes you will have 
the, I know we talked a lot about winging it, but sometimes you will have a little bit of time to, to prepare, um, you know, so it's a kind of a Thursday afternoon, you, you know, that Friday maybe is going to be a, a little bit of a slower, slower day. You'll have um, some extra time to teach. Uh, so in the, the afternoon of Thursday, kind of asking the team, what do you guys want to learn about? I know we talked about osteomyelitis yesterday. How did, how did that go? How can I change the, the talk around for our discussion tomorrow? And then have you ever received some feedback from learners that made you change something about the way you were small group teaching? Good question. I think I, I got a little bit of, of feedback to make it more case-based. And instead of just kind of like picking, uh, picking a topic, so instead of just discussing bronchiolitis, first starting off with a two-month-old who presents with respiratory distress. So it becomes more of a kind of differential diagnosis uh, discussion, as, and, and then maybe um, you have a little bit of time to discuss the final diagnosis and the management. Um, but really kind of starting, starting off with, with a case as opposed to, okay, we're, we're just going to talk about bronchiolitis for the, for, the next, for the next 10 minutes. So I've tried to do that a little bit more. How about you? In terms of seeking feedback, sometimes I'll ask the senior resident or whoever's most senior on the team, like, was that helpful? Have you seen this done in different ways that, you know, I could do it differently? And I'll fully admit I probably rarely seek feedback. Um, I feel like I'm, you know, it's usually in the context of rounding. I tend to talk too much. And so I'm already almost late for the next thing by the time I give a small group session. And then I'm just kind of out the door onto the next thing, answering a page. You know, sometimes that'll interrupt your teaching session. Mm -hmm. And so I don't always ask for feedback, but I definitely should more often, especially, you know, at the end of your time with a group, just saying, hey, I taught you on a few different topics. Were there some that were most helpful? Um, but yeah, I think I, I've tended to go to the more senior learner on the team because they probably have seen this topic done a few different ways. Um, and then feedback that I've received, I think sometimes I, tend to try to do too much in one session. So that's why I was saying mm -hmm. earlier, like just focus on one chunk of it. You don't have to explain, you know, the, the ins and outs of whatever it is that you're going through in such detail, but to try to break it down into bite-sized chunks and then just teach a little bit more often. Like I think three 10 minute teaching sessions are a lot more powerful than, you know, one 30 minute session sometimes. So yeah, I would encourage people to break it down a little bit more. And, and I think even like the, the mid-rotation feedback uh, that you as the attending or the fellow uh, do with residents um, and, and medical students, like that can also be a time when you yourself are getting feedback from them. Um, so kind of setting up the expectation when you're doing your chalk talks, like, hey, make, make sure to kind of make, make notes of this. I want to know what I can do better to help you guys learn some cool stuff. And then talking, discussing that at the, at the feedback sessions during the rotations. And stay tuned this fall for an episode on how to give effective feedback. So hopefully we'll give the listeners some tips on how to do that effectively as well. I, I realized what would have sounded really great after that is sponsored by Kahoot. Because I feel like we gave like a, middle, a little plug for, for Kahoot during this episode. So I'm, I'm hoping that in the, in the future that we will uh, yeah, we'll get, get a little sponsorship for this. Dear Kahoot, if you would yeah. like to upgrade Kathleen Timmy and John Swicky <laughs> to the full membership where we can do the yeah. other stuff, 
I don't even need a sponsorship. I just want like the $5 a month one that I'm too cheap to splurge for. <laughs> Guaranteed Kahoot plug every, every Teaching in Minnesota podcast if yeah. you just upgrade our subscriptions. <laughs> I'm, I'm certain that the CEO of Kahoot is going to listen yeah. to this and yeah, <laughs> email is going to blow up. So, <laughs> Well, I always have such a good time when you come on the podcast and I look forward to you know working with you and seeing where your career is headed next year. I asked you this last time, but I like to ask every guest, what piece of advice or teaching pearl would you like to leave us with today? So I, I came prepared this, this time for this question because I knew, I knew it was going was gonna to happen. I um, mean, there's a little bit of, of a story behind it. So hopefully the listeners won't get too, too upset with me uh, yeah, verging a, a little bit to start. Um, but ever since Hamilton came out in, in July, I've gone down like the American government and uh, political science rabbit hole. Um, and have been reading a lot about, about that kind of in my free time. And I recently was uh, reading about John F. Kennedy, who has like maybe one of the most famous presidential quotes um, I, I think is out there. And that was, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And I think as teachers, that is very applicable um, to, to us and uh, kind of changing it around um, a little bit. Ask not what your learners can do for you. Ask what you can do for your learners. Um, so just taking a very, very learner-centric approach. And I think especially in kind of a small group atmosphere where it's very intimate, um, where everyone uh, is, um, kind of knows each other by, by name, that, that's even more, uh, more pertinent um, and, and something that I try and keep in the, the back of my mind for all the small group sessions that I uh, help facilitate. Thank you so much. That's really wise advice and something that we should all strive for. Dr. Swicky, thank you once again for joining us on the podcast. We look forward to having you back and maybe next time we'll be calling you and attending. Maybe. Cross, yeah, cross, cross my fingers. We'll hopefully, hopefully get there. Well, thank you so much for, for having me, Dr. Timmy. It's been an absolute, absolute blast. Please send any comments or suggestions to teachinginmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. Please like us on Facebook and Instagram and follow us on Twitter at Teaching in Med.